Well, welcome to the bench today. I want to remind you about the first bench. Go ahead and put that picture up there. There it is. That's where we started several weeks ago with this bench. First time I saw that bench in Newton Center, and I began to think about this series after being there. This was the very first sermon that came to my mind as I began to process this series. So welcome back to the bench. I want you to look at that bench. As you notice, it's, it's kind of weathered and it's wood and it's not like this nice, shiny, smooth bench. And benches like that over time as they become weathered and the more that you sit in them, you might get a little splinter once in a while, right? And they get uncomfortable. Well, it's about to get uncomfortable in here for the next three weeks or so. Because Jesus has been meeting us here at this bench, and we've been welcoming others like Paul the Apostle and, and James, and we're going to Welcome the proverb writer today, and James again, and others along with Jesus. But let me remind you, let me remind you of why we're here. Let's look at these words together again. From Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23. Let's say them together. Guard your heart more than anything else, because the source of your life flows from it. Because the source of your life flows from it. Now, the last three weeks, we've considered a number of things. We established that the bench, really, we're talking about our hearts. And, and then we talked about Augustine's idea and Martin Luther's idea of this idea of incurvitus and see, this curving on in ourselves and how sin really can be defined as curving in on ourselves. Call it the sinful nature, call it the mind of the flesh, call it carnality, call it ego, call it animal brain. Every religion and every philosophy has the idea that our biggest enemy is when we curve in on ourselves. But the good news we discovered last week was that there's the power of God in the gospel that there's power in the grace of God, that there's optimism in the grace of God, both for that idea of pardon and forgiveness and the idea to empower us to live and to be different people. That we don't have to throw up our hands and go, you know what, there's nothing we can do about this. But that we can be different people. But let's hear again what Jesus said. These words we shared at the very beginning of our time on the bench because the conversation in the bench is about the shift. Jesus said a good person produces good things from the treasury of a good heart. And an evil person produces evil things from the treasury of an evil heart. What you say flows from what is in your heart. Now remember how Ray Ortland Jr. captured that. He said, life does not flow from the outside in, 
but from the inside out. And, and then he said, we need our hearts continuously filled with the ever-fresh life of Christ. But, but life doesn't flow from the outside in, but, but life flows from the inside out. But here's my question. What direction does this life primarily flow in and toward? Where is its most powerful, the flow, the current of my life, where is its most powerful and either most lethal or most glorious impact? And the answer to that is people. People. The, The flow of our hearts what comes out of our hearts, its fundamental impact, its greatest impact is on people. I know it's kind of an old image, an old metaphor, but I want you to think about a ripple, that idea of ripple effect. So this summer, while we were in Maine, um, we took our youngest granddaughter, Eloin, we took her to one of our favorite places, which is a drive-on beach. You could actually drive your car on, get to the very edge of the water. It's called Stover's Point. And so we took Elowen, and Elowen decided to bring her parents, Chris and Matt, with her. And that was okay with us. And we got her over there, and we got her to the beach, and Matt and I went and took a dip in the 62-degree water and woke up very quickly. But then we took Elowen, and it was time for Elowen to put her feet in the ocean for the first time. And of course, Elwin at that time was just five months, right? So we got Elwin all set up and, and got her little feet in there. And at first, she was not interested in the ocean. Then we put her little feet in there again, and she seemed to, to get it. And we got her out, and we were all excited. But then I noticed something. I looked at the water, and I began to notice that somewhere on the Harpswell Sound, which is where it is, there had been boat activity. Now, nowhere in my line of sight was there a boat. I couldn't see a boat anywhere, but I knew that there was boat activity somewhere on that massive Harpswell Sound. And the reason why I knew, because I'd been there many times and I saw this before, the ripples began to come in, and they got a little stronger and stronger as they came in and began to brush that little bit of shoreline. And I knew somewhere a boat was moving because it had impacted the water. Here's the point. Every choice, every choice I make impacts someone. Even when we say, we make statements like this, well, as long as it doesn't hurt anyone. Here's the truth. Every choice we make, every choice we make, impacts someone because every choice we make impacts our hearts. And in turn, our hearts form and shape the person we are, which then impacts how we touch other people. Every decision, every posture of my heart 
impacts every person I encounter. And that's why the conversation on the bench now shifts. We, we've spent three weeks talking about our hearts, talking about how we need to guard against the way we curve in on ourselves, talking about how in repentance we can turn to God and we can turn within and find new grace and hope and we can turn outward to others. And, but now things shift because if we're serious about what Jesus says about the heart and we know that what is in our hearts impacts other people, we must intentionally ask questions. Like this, today we're going to ask, who's sitting on your bench? Next week, <laughs> we're going to ask, are you giving into schadenfreude? Now, you Google that word, schadenfreude. Now, if my German grandmother was alive and she was here, she would stand up and interpret it for us. But you go ahead and look up that word. And then... What if we ask this question? Would Jesus be considered too woke today? The moment I mention that word, it creates discomfort. It creates tension. It creates tension in our culture. But would Jesus be considered too woke today? Now, if there was some theme to the Sundays that come, they would, it would come from maybe these two verses, and we'll kind of keep coming back to these two verses, but let's first look at Proverbs 18, 12 through 13. Before a downfall, the heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. To answer before listening, that is folly and shame. To answer before listening, that is folly and shame. And then these words from James chapter 1, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. We'll come back to those words. But notice these three things right away. First of all, these verses speak to us about embracing the virtue that is nearly on the extinction list, and that's humility. Humility. Embracing humility. The second thing we notice that there's an intentional decision made here. When you, when you read these verses, it's, they're asking us to make an intentional decision to not come with a defensive posture. And then thirdly, the texts refer to listening. But really, what they're talking about is seeing. Seeing someone, valuing them. Seeing them as a person. And so they caused me to ask, who, who gets to sit on my bench? Who gets to sit on my bench? Is there a space for others on my bench? If I took my bench and I put it into downtown Nashville and I sat down, is there anyone that I would say, boy, I hope they don't come sit on my bench? I see them coming. I hope they don't. I hope, I hope they don't. I'm not going to make eye contact with them. Because the moment I do, 
They might come over and they might talk to me or they might sit on my bench or they might ask me that hard question. Is there a space for others on my bench? Well, let's consider Jesus this morning because as we know, Jesus is the one who sits with us on the bench of our hearts. When we think about Jesus, we immediately think about the God who shows up in beautiful banners like the ones we have in our sanctuary. And I hope, as I mentioned several weeks ago, that you've taken some time to stand in front of them and meditate and wonder about the names of God. We, we think about the name Emmanuel, the God who is with us, and all these other beautiful names when we think about Jesus. But the thing is, sometimes I think we want to contain him to nice banners, Jesus is pretty safe when we can just contain him to names on the wall or some kind of designation in our minds. But the one thing, the one banner we're probably not going to hang up is Jesus, the rule breaker, right? We're probably not going to hang that banner up. Jesus, the one who broke the rules, That's the banner I don't think we're going to get produced. But that's what got Jesus in trouble. Jesus broke the rules about social status. Jesus broke the rules about politics. Jesus broke the rules about respectability. And Jesus broke what could be considered the rules of the church of his day. Now, all of this rule-breaking doesn't end well for Jesus. In fact, we find, we're going to go to Matthew 9 in a moment, but later in Matthew, Matthew 12, we find these words, but the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. But I want to be clear about this. The moment I say something like, Jesus was a rule-breaker, someone says, yes, awesome. But let's make sure we understand that Jesus does not break the rules for his own purposes. Make sure we understand that this isn't some anarchist mindset or some self-driven position or policy. Jesus is unlike the unspoken and spoken lived out rules of today. You do you or have it your way, or be your best self. That's not Jesus. But he was a rule breaker. In fact, if you read Matthew, the ninth chapter, it's filled with rule breaking. The rules that Jesus breaks in Matthew 9 are crazy. We don't see it. But in his world, it really made some people upset. He encounters a paralytic, and you know what he does? He forgives him. Isn't that great? But he forgives him before the paralytic confesses, repents, or asks for forgiveness. Think about that. He breaks the rules of Fasting with his disciples. The religious leaders were incensed. 
Why are your disciples not fasting like us? He touches a woman who is bleeding, who is considered off limits, unclean. And then he touches the body of a dead 12-year-old. And in doing so, everyone looking on said, oh man, he just destroyed his career, his reputation, his ministry as a rabbi. Because you're not supposed to touch dead people. Two blind men find sight as his touch. A demon-possessed man is delivered. But here's the problem. This is the problem with Matthew chapter 9. All of those people in all of those situations are considered unclean, unwanted, or unworthy, and off-limits. But it gets worse. Beginning in verse 9, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Why does your teacher eat with the IRS agent and Jeff DeFranza? <laughs> I desire mercy, not sacrifice, he says, for I, I have not come to call, underline that word, the righteous, but sinners. It's hard for us to see what's happening, but Jesus not only broke the rules, he breached them. He smashed them. He breached the religious rules for a reason, so that those who don't expect to have a seat on the bench will find out that there's room for them on the bench. When we speak of the idea or the gift of hospitality, Jesus was the chief model of that. No one models hospitality, biblical hospitality, better than Jesus. He is the most hospitable person to grace the face of the earth. But when we talk about hospitality in our understanding, what do we think of? We think of inviting some friends over for dinner. Maybe getting some friends together for a party. Next weekend we're having a party for our daughter's birthday. Getting some family together. Getting some, some of her friends together. Opening up our home for hospitality. That's really what we think about. Throwing a nice party. But that's really not what Jesus' hospitality is about. Not just having a gathering. Jesus' hospitality is about welcoming the unwelcome about seeing the people we actually want to hide from or hide, about touching those we deem are untouchable. Now, there's a word you heard me repeat a couple times Jesus uses when he says, I, I have come 
not to call the righteous, but I've come to call sinners. The Greek word means to invite. It has the idea of actually seeing someone and calling their name, right? Someone's name is the greatest sound to their ears, right? He calls their name. He sees them. It has this idea of welcome. He welcomes. And this is what created angst for the religious leaders. So much so, it caused them to hurl the greatest insults at them. At least they thought they were the greatest insults at him. Luke 15. Remember, Luke 15 is about lost things. Lost sheep, lost coin, lost boy. At the start of that chapter, it says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathered around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. I love how the Bible expresses some emotions. They muttered. I love that. Can you just see them? Can you see them muttering under their breath? This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. But, but I think we have to be kind of a little bit easy on the Pharisees because if we're going to be honest, if we're going to be truthful, within each one of us is an inner Pharisee that we have to guard. At least I know within me that I need to guard against. But let's look what's happening as we see Jesus in that ninth chapter of Matthew, what he's doing. He is showing us what the bench life looks like. Nothing is more powerful than that. I'm sure you've probably been reading many news articles about the decline of church attendance or the decline of identification in the church, about this growing credibility gap. And we're going to talk about this in about four sermons, five sermons. This growing credibility gap. Tomorrow night at men's dinner, Bob Whippen's going to share some information about the statistics of religion in New Hampshire. There's this growing credibility gap, not because people don't believe in God, but more and more surveys are saying the credibility gap exists because people don't believe that Christians practice what they believe. And there's this growing credibility gap. Is some of that media manufactured? Of course it is. But not all of it. Maybe not most of it. Nothing will close the credibility gap more than when we are like Jesus and are people of love and compassion and hospitality. What we're actually talking about is real holiness. If we believe that holiness is Christ-like love, listen to these words from Snow and Ermakov. Jesus is refining holiness here. Matthew 9. This holiness does not center on exclusion and separation, but on mercy and love. But, but hear this now. What I 
love about Jesus and what's amazing to me is that Jesus does not reduce his standards. And Jesus does not compromise his holiness. And Jesus doesn't diminish his posture or character or position. But here's the thing. He does not allow any of that to get in the way of his welcome. Brother James Custer um, from the Society of St. John Evangelist writes this. We acknowledge Jesus for many things, as a teacher, preacher, healer, Messiah, Lord, and Son of God. Yet in the gospel, we see him, even if reluctantly, as a breaker of rules. Jesus goes where he shouldn't, he does what he mustn't, and shows us that God can be found even where we think God can't possibly be. I don't know about you, but I am so glad that God can be found where God cannot possibly be. I, I am glad because in October of 1981, when this United States Navy young man was stationed overseas, and people began to share with him the gospel. And I was the furthest thing from anything that you would want or anyone you would want to sit on your bench. And people were literally saying this about me. He's never going to change. But there was this tiny little group of people who asked me if I wanted a Bible. I said, I'd love one. They said, that'd be $5, please. <laughs> What's up with that, right? And though I really didn't change all that much, they welcomed me to their bench. And the journey was up and down, up and down, up and down. And, you know, finally, you know, we, I went back home, we got married, and um, went back overseas. I, was, I walked away from the Lord. I was not, you didn't want me on your bench. But then there were these young men who welcomed me to their bench and just talked to me about Scripture, and I found my way back to the Lord, and Kathleen came to Bermuda where I was stationed then, and she, they made room for her on their bench too, and she came to the Lord. And, and we went home, and we walked into a Nazarene church in Oxnard, California. Rough. Uh, definitely a work in progress. <laughs> and Pastor Buck Gebhardt saw beyond what everyone else could see, and he welcomed me to his bench. I'm glad that God can be found even where we think God can't possibly be. Because there were so many people who thought God could not possibly change my life. What about you? The hospitality of God makes room for us on the bench and because of that, it is intended to find its way into our hearts for us to make room on the bench. Now, I wonder if that's why 
Jesus concludes, or why the math, Gospel of Matthew concludes chapter 9 the way it does. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. I don't think this is about some grand evangelism strategy or program. But because the field of our neighbors and our family members and our coworkers and everyone we come in contact is in need of his welcome, we are to make room for them at the bench as well. So this causes me to wonder out loud about some things, and we'll wind it up here. Who gets to sit on my bench? Who gets to sit on yours? Now let's be clear about some things here. There's a place we all need to have, which I fear is lost in our social media-driven culture. There's a place to have healthy boundaries around people and relationships that are toxic and codependent and in other ways destructive or hurtful. So there's a place for that. There's, there's a place where a boundary around the bench may have to exist. But that's not what we're referencing here. What non-Christian neighbors have a space on your bench? You know, any Christian who does not have deeply meaningful relationships with non-Christians is less than a Christian according to scriptures. I have some deep relationships with people who, they're not Christians and they're not moving to Christian, being Christians. Or what about the person with the totally opposite political position? Are they welcome to my bench? What about a person with a different lifestyle or a different religious faith where they just see the world differently than me? Sometimes it's really hard to welcome them to my bench, if I'm honest. What about that fellow church member who drives you nuts, irritates you? You wish they would not do what they do, that church person. I know none of you have any of those kind of people. But what about that coworker? who just gets under your skin? Or is there a nationality or a race or a culture you're too uncomfortable with to let them sit at your bench? I want to remind you, if you remember when we started this series, I talked about all these different brass plates and how these brass plates expressed our hearts. I want to remind you of this one. Be kind. For everyone you meet, everyone you meet is fighting a hard battle. Be kind. It was after I read that plate, and I went home and I began to reflect on it, I felt like the Lord tapping me on my heart, saying, we need to talk about some real hard things because there's lots of people in the world who are fighting a hard battle. Some of you came here this morning 
and you are fighting a hard battle somewhere in your heart and life this week. I am so cognizant of that. All of us are finding that place. But the call from Jesus, and even this little brass plate, is important because this is opposite of the trajectory of this incurvatus NC I keep talking about. It's the opposite of being turned or curved inward on, one, on oneself rather than outward towards others or towards God. And as we said last week, this is why the outward turn towards others is as critical as turning toward God or looking in at our own hearts because this gives room for God to move in our hearts and even by us turning outward, even by us coming with humility, even by us dropping the defensive posture, even by us listening, even by us trying to see someone, the Holy Spirit can then help turn that curve from ourselves to God and others, to being Christ-centered and others-oriented. And that, my friends, is holiness of heart and life. This gives God the room to bend the curve away from a self-referential life to the Christ-like life. And it causes me to ask, who's on your bench? And maybe what I really need to ask is, who gets to sit on my bench? We're going to leave it there with that question. And we're going to ask the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, would you speak to us? Would you help me, Lord, from not pointing my finger at that other person saying, yeah, they need to make room for their bench, but would you search my heart, O oh God? Would you look into me, O oh God? I just want to be like you. I want so much, Lord Jesus, for my life to leave your aroma in the world. Because nothing, oh God, will change this world, nothing other than you. And your good news for the gospel is the power of God for salvation. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile, for all people, So may my life reveal your character to a world that so needs you. Who gets to sit on your bench? Let's stand.